Chapter 14 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 and ends with a moral. All through the following day we were forced to be hard at work, whether we liked it or not, gathering a large lot of early apples, such as Keswick, Sugarloaf, and Julian, which would have been under the trees by this time in an early season, but this, through the chill and continual rain of the time that should have been summer, was the latest season within human memory, which, like its owners, is not very long. And now a break-up of the weather was threatened, at which we could not grumble, having now enjoyed ten days without any rain, a remarkable thing in much better years than this. And in this year it truly was a godsend, helping us to make some little push, before the winter closed over us, and comforting us to look up to heaven, without being almost beaten down. The people who live in great cities, where they need only go a few yards all day long, and can get beneath an awning or an archway, if a drop of rain disturbs their hats, give the weather ten bad words for every one we give it. Though we are bound to work in it, and worse than that, have our livelihood hanging upon it, not that we are better pleased than they, only that our more wholesome life and the strength of the trees and the unexhausted air put us into a kinder spirit to make the best of things that are ordered from above. Few things in the manner of ordinary work become more wearisome after a while than the long-continued gathering of fruit. The scent, which is delightful to those who catch a mere whiff of it in going by, becomes most cloying and even irksome to those who have it all day in their nostrils, and the beauty of the form and color, too, and the sleek gloss of each fine sample lose all their delight in the crowd of their coming, and make us even long to see the last of them. Every man of us, even Uncle Corny, to whom every basket was grist for the mill, felt heartily glad when the streaky sunset faded softly into dusk, when flat leaf looked as round as fruit, and apples knocked our heads instead of gliding into the ready hand. Oh, mind one thing, said my uncle with a yawn, when after a supper of liver and bacon knowingly fried by Mrs. Tabby, his pipe was between his teeth and all his other needs were toward. If I go on with my tale tonight, I am likely enough to leave out something which may be the gist of it for I feel that sleepy after all this job that I can scarcely keep my pipe alight. However, you have worked well today and shown no white feather for your sweetheart's sake, and of course you want to know most about her and how she comes into this queer tale. Poor young thing, she smiles as sweetly as if she trod a path of roses instead of nettles and briars and flint. Oh, I suppose she forgets her troubles whenever she looks at you, my lad. This made my heart beat faster than any words of his tale I had heard till now. As if she cared for me, as if it were possible for anyone to imagine that she would ever look twice at me. Uncle Corny, I thought you were a wiser man. I hoped that this might lead him on. To be sure, I was making a mistake, he answered, looking as if it were just the same thing. When I said you, I meant, of course, Sam Henderson, the racing man. That's the young fellow that has her heart. 
How beautifully she smiled when I mentioned him, and blushed when I said he was the finest fellow anywhere round Sunbury, and the steadiest and the cleverest. No, no, kid, it's all my fun. You needn't be looking at the carving knife. You know how I hate Sam Henderson, a stuck-up puppy, and a blackleg, too, according to my ideas. A girl who respects herself, as your kitty does, would have nothing to say to him, but she might to a fine young gardener, perhaps. Well, I have told you all about the first marriage and the widowhood of that precious Monica Coldpepper. What fools men are! What wondrous fools! Here was a widow, not over young, with a notorious temper and no money, or none of her own at any rate, and hampered with three children. Let me tell you their names while I think of it. Euphrasia, Donovan, and Geraldine. There's no duty to pay on a name, you know. Now would not any one have sworn that a woman like that might wear the weeds until she had stormed herself to death? Not a bit of it, my lad. She married again, and she married the cleverest man in London, and more than that, she got every farthing of his property settled upon her, although the poor man had a child of his own, and I'm told that she might have a dozen other men. She was still a fine woman, certainly, for it must have been some twelve years ago, and she is a fine woman to this day, according to those who have seen her, which I hope I may never do, for reasons I will not go into. But beside her appearance, what one thing was there to lead a sane man to marry her? And a man who had lost a sweet-tempered wife, a beautiful, loving, and modest woman, as like your kitty as two peas. Sometimes I feel sorry for him when I think of his former luck, and sometimes I am glad that he is served out for making such a horrible fool of himself. Nearly any other man would have hung himself, for the lady has gone from bad to worse and is now a thorough termagant, but this man endures her as if she were his fate. You know who he is? You must know now. Yes, I have known it since you began, and from what other people said, I suspected it before. As I answered thus, I was thinking how this condition of things would affect my chance. You don't seem at all astonished, Kit, my uncle went on with some disappointment at losing his sensation. You young folk have so little sense that you make it a point of honor never to be surprised by anything. If anybody had told me, without my knowing it already, that a man of great intellect like Professor Fairthorne would make such a fool of himself and then submit to have no life of his own, I should have said it was a crazy lie. But there is the truth, my boy, not to be got over and far worse than at first sight appears. A man who robs himself may be forgiven, but not a man who robs his children. It is the difference between suicide and murder. Very likely you are surprised that I, who have not a sixpence at stake and not even a friend involved in the matter, should get so hot about it, as I can't help being. There are plenty of viragos in the world. There are plenty of good men who cower before them for the sake of their own coward peace. Also, there are robberies in abundance, of children who cannot defend themselves, and of people who can, so far as that goes and ninety-nine men in a hundred would say, 
Well, this is no concern of mine. It is a very sad and shameful thing, but it does not touch my bread and cheese. Great is truth, and it will prevail, and I hope I may live to see it. But, Kit, my boy, the worst wrong of all was mine. A deadlier wrong has been done to me than of money or lands, or household peace. My life has been wrecked by that devil of a woman, as if it were a toy boat she sunk with her slipper. I did not mean to tell you, an old man cannot bear to talk of such things to young people. Is your whole heart set upon your kitty? I had never seen my uncle so disturbed before, and, to tell the plain truth, I was frightened by it. Sometimes I had seen him in a little passion, when he found the man he trusted robbing him, or the dealers cheated him beyond the right margin, or some favorite plant was kicked over, but he never lost his power then of ending with a smile, and a little turn of words would change his temper. But this was no question of temper now. His solid face was hardened, as if cast in stone, not a feature of it moved, but his gray curls trembled in a draft, and his hand upon the table quivered. I answered that my whole heart was set upon my kitty, but I knew that I should never win her. If she is true to you, you shall. That is, if you behave as a man should do. He spoke very slowly and with a low voice, almost as if talking to himself. If you are wise enough to let no lies or doubts or false pride come between you, there is no power but the will of God that can keep asunder a man and woman who have given their lives to each other. All the craft and falsehood and violence of the world melt away like a mist if they stand firm and faithful and abide their time, but it must hold good on both sides alike. Both must disdain every word that comes from lying lips, from the lips of all, whether true or false, except one another. Remember that as a rule, my lad, if rogues and scoundrels, male or female, come between you and the one you love. It has been a black streak in my life. It has kept me lonely in the world. Sometimes it seems to knock me over still. I have not spoken of it for years, and I cannot speak of it even now, any more. Not any more. He rose from his chair and went about the room as if it were his life, in which he was searching for something he should never find. To turn his thoughts and relieve my own, I took a clean pipe and filled it, and began to puff as if I liked it, although in those days I seldom smoked. This had been always a reproach against me, for a smoker seems to love a contribution to his cloud. "'Well done, Kit. You are a sensible fellow.' said my uncle, returning to his usual mood. Tobacco is the true counterblast to care. You take up your pipe, and I will take up my parable without going into my own affairs. I never told you how that confounded woman, the Lord forgive me if I bear malice, for I trust that he shares it with me, how she contrived to hook the poor professor and, what is still worse, every farthing of his money, not that I believe, to give the devil his due, that she sought him first for the sake of his money. He had not very much of that, for it seldom goes with brains that stamp their own coinage, 
but through his first wife, a beautiful and loving woman, he owned a nice house with large premises, in a rich part of London, or rather of the outskirts where the values were doubling every year, as the builders began to rage round it. Also, he had about five thousand pounds of hers, which was not under settlement and perhaps about the same amount of his own, not made by himself, for he had no gift of saving, but coming from his own family. Altogether he was worth about twenty thousand pounds, which he justly intended for his only child. This was pretty handsome, as you would say, and he took care not to imperil it. By any of his patents or other wasteful ways, he had been for many years in the Royal Navy, and commanded at one time a new-fangled ship with iron sheathings, or whatever they're called, which are now superseding the old man of war. Here he had seemed to be in his proper element, for he knew the machinery and all that as well as the makers did, and much better than any of the engineers on board, and he might have been promoted to almost anything, except for his easy-going nature. He had not the sternness and strength of will which were needful in his position, and though everybody loved and respected him, the discipline of the ship in minor matters fell abroad, and he was superseded. This cut him to the quick, as you might suppose, for he still was brooding over the loss of his first dear wife, which had befallen him while he was away on some experimental cruise. Between the two blows he was terribly out of heart and came back to his lonely London house in the state of mind which is apt to lay a man at the mercy of a crafty and designing woman. Unhappily, he was introduced just then to Mrs. Bullrag, and she fell in love with him, I do believe, as far as she is capable of doing it, though she might have flown and had been flying at higher game in a certain sense. She abandoned all others and set the whole strength of her will, which was great, upon conquering him. She displayed the most tender and motherly interest in his little darling daughter, she was breathless with delight at his vast scientific attainments and noble discoveries. She became the one woman in all the world who could enter into his mind and second his lofty ideas for the grandeur of humanity. Unluckily they were so far apart in their natures that no collision yet ensued which might have laid bare her true character and enforced the warnings of his many friends. Not to make too long a story of it, she led him to the matrimonial altar, as the papers call it, without any solicitor for his best man, but a very sharp one behind her, with the carelessness of a man of genius added to his own noble faith in woman. He had signed a marriage settlement which gave her not only a life interest in all his property, but a separate power of disposal by assignment which might be exercised at any time and the trustees were old allies of hers, who were not beyond suspicion of having been something even more than that. However, she loved her dear professor, as she insisted on calling him, for a certain time, with the fervor of youth, though she must have been going on for forty, and she led him about in high triumph, and your kitty was sent to a poor boarding school. The Honorable Mrs. Bullrag Fairthorne, as, in defiance of custom, she engraved herself, became quite the fashion among a certain lot, and aspired to climb yet higher, 
for if she has a weakness, it is to be among great people and in high society. She changed the name of the poor professor's house at South Kensington to Bullrag Park. She thought nothing of paying thirty pounds for a dress, and she gave large parties all the night long. Meanwhile, he went about his work, and she took possession of every halfpenny he earned, and spent it on herself and her children. Her boy and two girls were pampered and indulged, while Kitty was starved and threadbare. You have seen the sort of man he is, simple, quiet, and unpretending, full of his own ideas and fancies, observing everything in the way of nature, but caring very little for the ways of men. He kept himself out of the world she lived in, and tried to believe that she was a good, though rather noisy woman. But suddenly all his goodwill was shattered, and he nearly shared the same fate himself. He was sitting up very late one night in the little room allowed to him for the various tools and instruments and appliances and specimens and all that sort of thing, which were the apple of his eye, and by a special light of his own devising he was working up the finish of some grand experiment, from which he expected great wonders, no doubt. I don't know how many kinds of acid he had got in little bottles, and how many, I don't know what their names are, but something of a kyle, like ragged jack, and how many other itemies, as Tabby Tapscott calls them, the Lord only knoweth who made them, and perhaps the men have got beyond even him. At any rate, there he was in all his glory, and he would have given ten years of his life to be let alone for an hour or two, but suddenly the door flew open as if with a strong kick, and the shake and the draft set his flames and waters quivering. He looked up with his mild eyes and beheld a fury. "'What do you mean by this?' she cried. "'Here I come from Lord Oglequince's, whence you left me to go by myself as usual, and on my red Davenport I find this, a fine piece of extravagance. Whose money is it?' "'Well, Monica, it was not meant to go to you,' the professor replied, for he saw what it was, a bill of about three pounds, for a cloak and a skirt and a hat, or some such things which his daughter's schoolmistress had written for, because the poor girl was unfit to be seen with the rest. "'My dear, I will pay for it, of course. You have nothing to do with it. It was put on your desk by mistake altogether.' "'Oh, then you mean to do it on the sly, "'to spend on this little upstart of yours "'the money that belongs to my poor children. "'Whose house is this? "'Whose chair are you sitting on? "'For, of course, you never have the manners to rise "'when a lady comes to speak to you. "'Do you think you will ever make a penny "'by all your trumpery dibbles and dabbles? "'I hate the sight of them, and I will not allow them.' "'Hand me that cane with the sponge at the end.' The captain arose under her rebuke and looked at her with calm curiosity, as if she were part of his experiment. He had never seen a case of such groundless fury and could scarcely believe that it was real. Her blazing eyes were fixed on his, and her figure seemed to tower in her towering rage. Such folly, however, could not frighten him, and he smiled as if looking at a baby, while he handed her the cane. "'You laugh at me, do you? 
you think I am your slave? She cried as she swung the cane round her head, and he fully expected the benefit. Because I am a poor, weak woman, I am to be trampled on in my own house, and come on my knees at these shameful hours, to hold all your gullypots and files for you. Look, this is the way I serve your grand science. There go a few of them, and there, and there. How do you like that, Professor? Oh, oh, oh! At the third sweep of the cane among his chemical treasures, she had dashed on the floor, among many other things, a small stoppered bottle full of caustic liquid, and a fair dose had fallen on her instep, which was protected by nothing but a thin silk stocking. Screeching with pain, she danced around the room, and then fell upon a chair and began to tear her hair in a violent fit of hysterics. "'It is painful for the moment, but there is no serious harm,' said the captain as he rang the bell for her own attendant. "'Fortunately, the contents of that bottle were diluted, or she might never have walked again.' if indeed such a style of progress is to be called walking, it is most unwise of any Tiro to interfere with these little inquiries. I was very near a fine result, and now, I fear, it is all scattered. The next day he did what he should have done some months ago. He took the copy of his marriage settlement to a good solicitor and found, to his sad astonishment, that the boasts of the termagant were true. Under the provisions of that document, as atrocious a swindle as was ever perpetrated, he could be turned out of his own house, and the property he intended for his own child was at the mercy of her stepmother. From the lawyer he got not a crumb of comfort. The settlement was his own act and deed. There was no escaping from it. It had been prepared by the lady's solicitors, and he had signed it without consideration. All very true, but he should have considered, and marriage was a consideration, in the eye of the law, and a binding one. If the professor wished, the solicitor would take counsel's opinion, whether there might be any chance of obtaining redress from equity. But he felt sure that to do so would only be a waste of money. It was a most irregular thing, that in such an arrangement one side should be represented, but that was the fault of the other side which surrendered its own interests. In fact, it was a very fine instance of confidence in human nature, and human nature had been grateful enough to make the most of the confidence offered. If you did not know what the professor is, you might suppose, Kit, that he was overcome, and overwhelmed with the result of his own neglect and softness. Not a bit of it. In a week's time he had mended all his broken apparatus, and the only difference to be noticed was that he never began work without locking the door. His treatment of his wife was the same as ever. He bore no ill will, or at any rate showed none, on account of that strong explosion, and he took thenceforth all her fits of fury as gusts of wind that had got in by mistake. It is impossible for any woman to make a man of that nature unhappy." He would have been happier, I dare say, and have done much more for the good of the world if he had married a peaceful woman. But I know very little of those matters. Only, as you have an ordinary mind, be sure that you marry a sweet-tempered woman. To bed, my boy, to bed. We must be up right early. End of chapter 14